The Gospel Lesson is written in the second chapter of John, beginning at the first verse. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In 1969, archaeologists digging beneath the Jewish quarter of Old Jerusalem made an exceptional find. What they discovered were the remains of a first-century house. Found under a layer of ash and destruction, this indicated that the house had burned down. The fire caused the building's walls to collapse, trapping under them everything that had been in the house. Here you are looking into an excavated room with a mosaic floor and some furnishings. The dig team named the find the Burnt House. Its destruction dates to A.D. 70, the year the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Homes, businesses, and most notably, the great temple of the Jews were flattened and burned. The burnt house was located near the temple and housed a priestly family. Some of what was discovered here throws light on today's gospel reading. Do you see those jars sitting under the table in the background? Let me take you in for a closer look. These tall, goblet-shaped jars are not made of pottery, which is significant. In the ancient world, most jars, bowls, and other kitchenware were made of shaped and fired clay, pottery. However, these very special jars were expensive carved stone vessels. Here's some background to understanding them. Jewish laws of ritual purity and impurity are extensive given to them by God. However, by the time of Christ, the laws were greatly expanded 
by the Jewish leadership to include rules of man-made origin. Ritual or ceremonial cleanliness was now applied extensively to the daily life of the Jewish community. For those who could afford such things, it made sense to purchase a stone vessel which could not become ceremonially unclean. Once a vessel became ritually or ceremonially unclean, it had to be taken out of use. An impure pottery vessel, for example, had to be broken. But Jewish law taught that stone could not become ritually unclean, and so it could be used freely for a lifetime. Laws of ritual cleanliness were unrelated to physical cleanliness. In Matthew 15, we read of Jewish leaders fussing at Jesus and his disciples about not washing their hands before eating. Now, to us, that sounds rather unfortunately disgusting, and we wonder why they'd want to be eating with dirty, grubby hands. But that's not what this is about. What the Pharisees and others have on their mind is ceremonial ritual cleanliness, not working up a good lather with soap and water. A ritual use of water is something done beyond physical bathing, pouring water over the hands while saying a brief blessing would be a typical method of this kind of ritual cleansing with water. By the time of Jesus, people were required to do more than the law of God required in Holy Scripture. Religious leaders had extended the God-given laws to include many more aspects of life, and it's these additional man-made rules that Jesus does not support. So, As our gospel reading for today describes the happenings at the wedding in Cana, we're told that at the wedding feast there were six stone jars. Their purpose is clearly called out. They are there for the Jewish rites of purification. These water jars were there to provide a way for the wedding guests to wet their hands with water. It's a religious ritual. Everyone should be coming to the wedding feast with already physically clean hands. This wedding marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's been invited there with his mother and some disciples. The wedding guests feast together in these ritual stone vessels will become an important part of the story. Did you notice The first four words of today's gospel reading, on the third day. What's that phrase make you think of? The resurrection on the third day, certainly. The wedding and first miracle at Cana begin Jesus' public ministry, and the account starts with these words, on the third day. This phrase is a marker to the opening event of his public ministry and the climatic event of Jesus' life as well, the resurrection. These two third days are bookends in John's gospel story. So, back to the wedding. How fun it is. 
that everyone gets to go celebrate this marriage. Friends and family gather for several days, not only witnessing the ceremony, joining a man and woman for life, but also feasting and partying. A time of joy and laughter that was a major social event for all concerned. The wedding at Cana is certainly an opportunity to relax and celebrate. But then something happens, and you all know what it is. Yes, they run out of wine. Mary brings this to Jesus' attention. By his instruction, the servants fill the ceremonial stone jars to the brim with water. They are huge stone jars, and your Bibles will tell you that they each hold 20 to 30 gallons. Now, translating biblical measures into this modern English format is provided to you in your Bible as a help. However, they didn't measure liquids in gallons back in Jesus' day. In the original Greek of the text, it says each stone jar held two or three metrates. Now, one of these units is calculated as equivalent to about 10 of our gallons. So, if you do the math, each jar would hold 20 to 30 gallons. And there's six jars. That's a lot of wine. (laughs) And it's great wine. Both quantity and quality mark Jesus' first miracle. It's a picture of providential abundance foreshadowing the ultimate eternal feast, Jesus provides only the best for this marriage feast. This wedding is a foretaste of the great heavenly feast in store for God's people. Those stone water jars used for the Jewish purification rites are a sign that God's now doing something new. He's making all things new, wiping away the filth of sin. Christ on the cross brings a new world into being, a world that will be washed clean in a whole new way. The glorious eternal marriage banquet is described in the 19th chapter of Revelation. Christ is the groom and his church is the bride. The voices of the believers, the people of the church, a great multitude cry, hallelujah. The voices rejoice with a great roar because there are so many at this heavenly marriage feast. Do you have a seat at this table? You do if you embrace the faith that has been given to you, faith in Jesus Christ provides a place at this feast. In Matthew 8.11, Jesus calls it a great feast in the kingdom of heaven. The faithful have a place at the table. Jesus names names of people seated there. And so we know that specific individuals are there at the feast. It's not just some amorphic blob of generalized humanity. Now, the next point I'm going to make is important. I talk to many people at the end of their lives, 
and I talk with their grieving families as they plan the funerals for those they love. Expectations of heaven are frequently part of the conversation. Sometimes I hear things like, I'm looking forward to seeing my father again, or I'm glad mom is now with dad. I understand those feelings. So do you. When we are privileged to love greatly, we also come to know great loss. I'm privileged to have known three of my grandparents well. They loved me, and I love them with all my heart. Day after day, I still miss them. They spoke the name of Jesus to me and took me to church. Because of them, when I was just six years old, I already had a Bible with my name printed in gold on the cover. I hope that I will someday stand before the glory of God with them, praising our Lord eternally, knowing his glorious presence. They all would have said, I am a Christian, if you asked them about their faith. And so I have this hope. But this is what I want you to hear today. Wanting to be again with those you love who have gone before you is not all that eternity in glory is about. Where is your focus when you think about eternity? Is it all about those who have died and being reunited with them? Are you looking forward to putting your arms around them and embracing? Are you looking forward to a conversation and hearing that beloved voice once more? Do you just want to lay your eyes on a much-loved face again? We all know the sorrow. We all know the mourning. We all know the longing. But dreams of reunion with those who have died is not the entirety of heavenly joy. It's not even the main thing the Bible tells us about eternity. The greater joy, the greater purpose, the greater glory is being in the presence of God. So when I visit those at the end of life, I rejoice with the ones who say that what they are looking forward to most in heaven because of their Christian faith is seeing Jesus. They get it, and I rejoice with them that they get it. This is what Christian faith is about. Yes, we are told we will be with the Christian faithful for eternity too, but that's not the sum total of what heaven is about. Last week and again today, I've preached about the living and the dead, our relationship with each other, and our faith in Christ. There is a life to come. We need to know what to expect, and we need to know why we rejoice. If you struggle to have a clear and biblical understanding of eternity, you are not alone. In fact, Scripture tells us that's to be expected in this world. 1 Corinthians 13:12 reads, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Things may be blurry today, and 
We're seeing through an earthly fog that steams up the mirror. But we anticipate the life to come. When the mirror is wiped clean, then we will see our Lord face to face with full understanding. Our Lord knows us, understands our longings and failures, and still he loves us, feeble and broken as we are. We trust in the promise of the day to come when we will, by his grace, be made perfect and fully understand. The day when we will feast together with him. Amen.